0: And now, people of God, let's open our copies of God's Word to the ninth chapter of Isaiah's prophecy. Isaiah was an 8th century B.C. prophet. Last week we looked at Isaiah 7.14. Now let me remind you that over these weeks we're looking at four Old Testament prophecies. The first from Genesis 49, verse 10. The second was Isaiah 7.14. Now, that from last week was really the center of those prophecies that actually helps to explain the two that are coming up and is related even to the one that we found in Genesis 49 in various ways. So, if you were not here and you did not hear the exposition of Isaiah 7:14, I would very much encourage you to do that because I think it would help to fill in some gaps and to provide understanding of what even happens this morning in the sermon that we will be preaching So in Isaiah chapter 9, we will read the entire uh, section beginning at verse 1 through verse 7. But first, let's bow before the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we have just sung the Magnificat, and we see that Mary dwelt on covenant theology when she thought of the coming of Christ into this world. And we are thankful, Heavenly Father, that through all generations thou art the same. Hand to God to us and to our children after us. And how privileged we are all through the year, of course, but at this time of the year, to be able to teach our children about the significance of this great redemptive historical event when God himself came into this world to redeem us from our sins. And we ask that all, young and old, will understand the significance of this. But we also know that apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, there can be no personal faith in Christ, no deep and real understanding of these things. And we ask that these redemptive historical facts will, even this morning in the lives of some who do not know Christ, become for them the power of God unto salvation as they hear the word of the Lord proclaimed and preached. That they may trust in Christ, confess their sins, and know that those who trust in Christ are saved for time and eternity. Grow us in grace, and every year may we begin, just begin, to plumb the depths and reach something of the heights of what it means that God came down to save us. Hear our prayer. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please take your copy of God's Word and stand. Isaiah, the ninth chapter. This is the word of the Lord. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish in the former time. He brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the later time, he For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle, tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder people of God. Let me remind you that Isaiah chapter 7 through 9 constitute what is sometimes called the book of Emmanuel. And in that section there are various prophecies of the coming of Christ and there are other prophecies that re- relate directly to the time and age in which Isaiah prophesied. But that's where also we found that wonderful prophecy in Isaiah Isaiah 7.14 that prophesies the virgin birth of Christ, as we saw last week. And He is God with us. He is Emmanuel. Now we come to these additional titles here in chapter 9, especially in verses uh, 6 and reading on into 7. And there we see an unpacking of what Emmanuel means. There is a direct connection between Isaiah 7:14. And what we have just read here in Isaiah 9, who is Emmanuel? Well, it's the prophet through divine inspiration saying, let me show you some more about him, who he is going to be, and why he is the Savior and Redeemer of sinners like us. So we learn more about what it means that God is with us in these titles here in Isaiah chapter 9. Now, you'll have noticed, of course, as we began reading, that there's a contrast that is between light and dark. Uh, The coming of the Messiah will mean light and joy that replaces darkness and depression. And here we see the profound impact of his coming because at the time of this prophecy, there was the domination of the people of God underneath Assyria. And in verse 2, we find the place where Assyria brought terror and death is the very place where the gospel will first be known. This is this land of Naphtali that is spoken of, and if you're reading in Matthew's gospel, chapter 4, verses 15 and 16, these verses are quoted to show that when our Lord came and ministered first in the darkest part of Israel— It was a fulfillment of the promise that we find in these opening verses here in Isaiah chapter 9. His earthly ministry, when he was preaching the light of repentance in this darkest place of Israel, demonstrates the fulfillment of what it means that a light is coming. I wonder here this morning if there is darkness that reigns and rules in someone's heart and you also need the light of the glory of God to shine in the face of Jesus Christ that he might say to you, let there be light and there will be light. May the Lord do that in some heart today. And so God's zeal is at work here as we read in the end of verse 7, this kingdom that is established is established not because of what men are capable of doing but what God is doing and what he has promised his people. And so in dark times, Isaiah looks back and he looks forward. In verse 4, he recalls how God obtained victory for Gideon, a victory that Gideon had no right to gloat over. It was not because of Gideon. He could have taken no credit for it. And then, of course, the accomplishment of the kingdom of God, as we see here in this chapter, harks back to that because it's all of God's grace. Brightness is coming. Even the Gentiles will participate in its joy, we read in verse 2. Gloom is not the ultimate reality. Do you hear that? It wasn't then, it's not now. Gloom is not the ultimate reality. Christ will come, the light will come through the Redeemer. So who is this Redeemer? Well, we know from chapter seven, verse 14, that he is Emmanuel, God with us. But when we come to this section, we find that it's unpacked for us even more. He is a child born. He is a son given. He is a child born, verse 6, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. He is a child born. Again, Isaiah chapter 7, we know that it is through the virgin birth. We read in Luke's gospel, therefore that holy thing which shall be born to you shall be called the Son of God. And the word that is used here for child is actually actually masculine. And so it already tells us that it's a son. That being the case, why does the language change? Why does he say a child will be born? Yes, it's a male child, but a son will be given. I think the reason for that is that we are to understand it in light of all that the Bible tells us about this one that is coming. As we have progressive revelation, we understand more of who this child is, this son that would be given. He is the son of the Father, the eternal son of God, the second person of the Trinity. He is given by the Father, the everlasting son of the Father that is given for us and for our salvation. That's who he is. Put it another way, this is John 3:16 in its Old Testament form. For God so loved the world that he gave, gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And so that child must indeed be wonderful if he is the Son of the Father, the second person of the Trinity, as we learn from Scripture. He must indeed be wonderful, and that leads us to focus upon these five titles that we find here that unpack for us the name of the one that is given for God's people for our salvation, the one who is Emmanuel, God with us. And of course, the first is wonder. To us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called wonderful. Now, I put a comma there, I'll say more about that in a moment, but usually this word wonder, literally translated it's wonder, it's wonder, usually this word is a word that speaks of deity, of what only God is capable of doing. For example, in the book of Judges, chapter 13, verse 18, When the father of Samson, Manoah, is confronted by the angel of Jehovah, that messenger of the Lord, which is a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ, when Manoah is faced with that angel, he wants to know his name, and the angel of the Lord responds, why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful, the very word that is used here. After the angel of the Lord went up in the flame of, of the altar, then Manoah and his wife, the Bible tells us, fell on their faces to the ground, because they had been confronted with God Himself, you see, with wonder. E. W. Hinstenberg, that great Old Testament scholar of the past, says about Judges thirteen, eighteen, that it's saying, That is, my whole nature is miraculous full of mystery, and therefore cannot be designated by any human name. There is no human name that ultimately can summarize for us all that He is and, and what it means that He is our Savior. Wonder, then, is the standard expression in the Old Testament for miracle. He is saying, I am the miraculous one. I am the one who can save. I am the one who can redeem because I name, my name is miracle. And so as we come to this text and we think through these titles, we begin with a a sense of awe. We should be filled with a sense of reverence. Do you sense this when you think of the child born in Bethlehem of Judea? Do you contemplate your redemption in light of the fact that God is the wondrous God? Do you think of this when you contemplate His return? Now the standard approach now is to see Wonderful Counselor as one title. And over the years, as I have studied the grammatical issues that are, that are at work here, uh, I must tell you that my own position has, has grown and matured, and I still see it as a separate title. I won't go into the detail. They're, they're fine scholars on both sides of that issue. I believe that they are two distinct nouns, that wonderful is not an adjective that describes counselor, though it certainly relates to counselor. So when we come to this, I think we see first of all that His name, that is who He is, what He has come to do. He is the miraculous God who has come to perform a miracle of salvation that no one but our God could do. This is who the Christ child is. His name is wonder. Let our hearts be filled then with a sense of wonder and awe. And then the next title is the the title Counselor. You see it right there in verse 6, wonderful counselor. If wonderful signifies what only God can do, then counselor is divine counsel. It is counsel that only God can give, and no one else ultimately can. And that child born, that son given, is the counselor of the people of God. Calvin put it beautifully because you see deity is being stressed here as well. Calvin says the reason of this second title is that the Redeemer will come endowed with absolute wisdom. No man could reveal to a sinner the way of life. No man could reveal the plan of salvation. No man could have revealed to us what it means to be accepted by God, sanctified by the Spirit, glorified, this only can come from God. There have been wonderful examples of men filled with the Spirit of God who had great wisdom. We think of David's court that had Ahithophel or Solomon's wisdom was supernatural, but the son's wisdom is divine wisdom. So that in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, chapter 1, verse 24 and verse 30, Our Savior is called, designated, our wisdom. So in His office as Redeemer, the Son has already been privy to the eternal counsels of the Holy Trinity. And just looking over at the next chapter, chapter 11, which also prophesies the coming of Christ, we read in the first two verses, "...there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him." the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Now, need I remind you that our world was destroyed by evil, wicked, dark counsel? And it continues to be. But this one, whose name is Counselor, is the second person of the Holy Trinity. He has given us his written word. He has given to his people the Holy Spirit to indwell us, to illumine our understanding and the promise of wisdom in answers in answer to our prayers. If anyone lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth not, we read in the book of James. So an immediate and essential application of this title counselor that is so much needed by the people of God today is that we should use the appointed means of the divine counselor to understand what is true and right and good, what God expects of me in this world, how I am to be obedient to him as a child of God, and do not turn to worldly counselors since he is our great counselor. Now, I must say, this is something I think we need to hear. We do not, as believers, turn to human counselors who do not know who God is, do not know who man is, do not know what is, what is revealed in His Word, have no understanding of the redemptive plan of God when it comes to our ethical issues. And yet thousands upon thousands upon thousands of believers are regularly turning to secular counselors rather than those who can open the Word of God and show what the divine counselor has to say about life. Hearken to Christ's counsel and live. Well, he has and he is in his essence wisdom who has revealed the divine wisdom in the plan of salvation and redemption. But, does he have power? Well, he's wise. He has a plan, but can he execute that plan? He has wisdom, but can he actually bring about those things that he desires to bring about? Oh, yes, he can, because you see, the third title is the mighty God, El Gabor. Now, you hear that word El, don't you? Because it is the last syllable in Emmanuel, God with us. El, this is God. And we have another stress on the deity of Jesus Christ. Now, I probably have told you this, but I just remembered it, that I had a discussion. I've had several discussions in my life with Jehovah's Witnesses and have opened the Scriptures to them and called them to faith in Christ. And I remember going to this text and saying, well, who is this about? Well, it's about Jesus. Well, they were right. It is about Jesus. And I said, Well, it says here that Jesus is the mighty God. Ah, but they say to me, It doesn't say Almighty. So I said, Well, just turn to the next chapter. And we turn to chapter 10. And I say, Will you read with me some of it? And they will say, Yes. I say, Well, who is this? Well, it's Jehovah. It's Jehovah. And then I say, Well, let's look at verses 20 and 21. And that day the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on Jehovah, Yahweh, on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. In truth, a remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. And so in chapter 10, Jehovah is called the mighty God. In the prior chapter, they want to tell me that it doesn't mean the mighty God, that is to say the true and living God, the almighty God. The mighty here is not intended to relativize his might. It is intended to show us that he is indeed the almighty one. So who is Jesus? He is Jehovah, the second person of the Trinity. That truth is being stressed in these names. Again, Calvin says so beautifully, if Christ had not been God, it would have been unlawful to glory in him. You can't glory in him if he is not God. You can't worship him if he is not God. You may not. So if Christ had not been God, it would have been unlawful glory in him, for it is written, curse be he that trusteth in man. We must therefore meet with the majesty of God in him so that there truly dwells in him that which cannot without sacrilege be attributed to a creature." So already in Isaiah, Emmanuel means God become man, God with us, chapter 7, verse 14. And unless God became man, God, Jehovah, the second person of the Trinity, unless God became man, he could not be your mediator. He could not open the path to bring you to God. Unless he is God, he could not save you. The folly of those who deny the deity of Christ. They are giving up the deity of Christ, and with it they are giving up our salvation. Well, so long as one is sincere, really, does it matter, Pastor? Yes, it matters. Because here is the difference. I think Spurgeon said this somewhere in some illustration. But it's the difference between thin ice, through which you will fall when you cross the pond, and thick ice on which you can rest and go all the way across. It will carry you over when Jesus Christ is who He is as our Savior, He is God. And so He is God who assumed human nature and only His divine nature could give to His finite sufferings infinite value to remove our infinitely hell-deserving sins. So we do not have a Jesus who wrings His hands waiting for people to save themselves. He came into this world, thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. And oh, but our mighty God, the Lord Jesus, is mighty to save. So I say to you, someone here today, and you think I'm too gone to be saved, I'm too lost to be saved. You're praying for someone, and they think that, and perhaps you've even been tempted to think that. God is mighty to save. There is no one that he cannot save. There is no one that he cannot redeem. But then we come to an interesting title, don't we? He is the Everlasting Father. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. Now, Father here is not not a failure to distinguish between the persons of the Trinity. Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. But is best translated as it's aviad, the father of eternity or the author of eternity or perhaps even better the possessor of eternity. So the father of glory means glorious, the father of goodness means good, the father of compassion means compassionate and so the father of eternity literally translated here means the author or bestower of eternal life. Only the eternal God can grant you eternal life. Eternity can only be ascribed to God. Now, this is one of the great mysteries that we face every Christmas, don't we? And I hope you think about it in other times as well. It's so essential. At Christmas, when we consider the relation of eternity to time, when we unpack the divine equation, what does it mean that He is God and man? That He is united in one person. These two natures united in one person. What can follow but a sense of awe? What can follow but a sense of wonder? And so the infinite became finite. Listen, I say this to you every Christmas. The infinite became finite. The eternal, subject to time. The unchangeable became changeable. The divine became human. God became man without ceasing to be God, without ceasing to be infinite, without ceasing to be eternal, without ceasing to be unchangeable, without ceasing to be divine. This is beyond us, two natures, one person, God and man and one person inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably united, to use the words of the Council of Chalcedon. But it's because of this union of the two natures in one person, it is because of this that his work on the cross, his atonement, the shedding of his blood, always is infinitely valuable. It is because of this that his sacrifice is always efficacious. It is because of this that His sacrifice always accomplishes its purpose. It is because of this His intercession is always prevailing for His people. And as Father of eternity, it is because of this that He can grant to lost sinners who would have been lost in hell forever and ever and ever, it is because of the union of the two natures in one person that he can grant that he can grant in his grace salvation and deliverance from hell and eternal life. Have you come to him for this? Have you turned to the Lord? Have you said I need a savior like this? Someone who can save my I've offended God, the infinite God, and I deserve his infinite displeasure. I need a savior who can redeem and deliver me and who can grant me eternal life if you come to him because all who come to him, he will receive and will not turn away. Well, how fitting then that the final title here is the Prince of Peace, wonderful counselor, mighty God, the everlasting father, the Tsar Shalom, the Prince of Peace. The prince sits on David's throne, we read in verse 7, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And from the Old Testament perspective, David's throne is coordinate with the throne of God. You read, for example, in 1 Chronicles 29, verse 23, then Solomon sat on the throne of the Lord. Then Solomon sat on the throne of the Lord as king in place of David, his father. And so you see, the throne of the Lord and the throne of David and his descendants, these are two coordinate themes. How then is he the Prince of Peace? How then does he sit upon David's throne? How is he the fulfillment? Do you remember last week we saw that David's house was being threatened and how God would intervene? Well, he's intervened through the Son of God who now sits upon David's throne. How is this possible? How is he the Prince of Peace? Well, let me tell you some ways in which he's the Prince of Peace. First, he is the Prince of Peace through his accomplishment on the cross. No king's reign ever came like this. The virgin-born Savior, the God-man, established the kingdom of peace. His saving rule in the hearts of men by means of the sacrifice of himself upon the cross. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He so desired His people to be at peace that He came to remove the sin that separated God and man. Christ's blood provides the cover and the storm of God's wrath. The place of peace, the place of safety from justly deserved wrath. And through this, there comes to the believer, through this objective peace that He wrought on the cross, comes to the believer's heart also subjective peace. As we read in Romans five one, therefore since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians three seven, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Colossians three fifteen, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called. And Calvin is certainly right when he says, hence it follows that life without this king is restless and miserable. He is king first because of his triumph on the cross, but he is also the king of peace in converting sinners for whom he died. For he accomplished salvation, and through the work of his spirit he applies salvation Jesus is the Prince of Peace. His reign is now victorious. He did not wait for some earthly earthly golden age to sit upon the throne. He sits now. His work is victorious. His work is triumphant. In saving sinners, he rules and he reigns. And then thirdly, the coming of Christ at the end of the age will show that our Savior is the Prince of Peace. The hope of the church must not be distracted by some kind of millennial thinking, away from the one hope the Scriptures give us as the ultimate hope for the believer, which is the blessed hope of the return of Jesus Christ at the end of the age. And until then, the church will be opposed by the world and also by the false church. Heidelberg Catechism, question 52. What comfort is it to thee? that Christ shall come again to judge the quick and the dead. Answer, that in all my sorrows and persecutions with uplifted head, I look for the selfsame one who has before offered himself for me to the judgment of God and remove from me all curse to come again as judge from heaven, who shall cast all his and my enemies into everlasting condemnation, but shall take me with all his chosen ones to himself." into heavenly joy and glory. He is the Prince of Peace, and all will see it when He comes again. And why is it important to stress, as we think of Jesus as being the Prince of Peace, why is it important to stress that it will be demonstrated to all when He comes again that He is Prince of Peace? Why is it important to stress This hope that the Scriptures say is a certain hope, the coming of Jesus Christ at the end of the age. Well, I will tell you why. It is important to stress this because what you hope for controls your life. For what do you hope? For what do you long? What are the deepest longings of your heart? What is the the real hope the foundational hope of your life. If it's based upon the Prince of Peace who died, who has called you through the Spirit, and who is coming again, that's solid resting place for your feet. Why is it important to focus upon the return of Christ as we think of Jesus as the Prince of Peace? I want to repeat it, because what you hope for controls your life. Are you controlled by that hope? Do you even think about it day by day? Does it control you as the Scriptures teach that it should? And then all will know the truth of Luke 1, 32 and 33. The Lord God shall give him the throne of his father David, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom there shall be no end. And when we come to the end of the Bible and we look at Revelation chapter 5, and we see in that wonderful chapter the account of what it will be like when Jesus comes again and has gathered His own unto Himself. We read, And between the throne and four living creatures, and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. And then, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom of priests unto God, and they shall reign on the earth. And then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain All the universe then sees on that day that He is the Prince of Peace. Let me make a couple of applications. You have no idea how much I've cut and slashed from this sermon this morning. Let me make a couple of applications for you. I'm sure you see how all of these magnificent titles apply to your hearts as believers in Christ. But let's think about that for a moment. Contemplate this. It's true that when we receive Christ, we receive the whole Christ. You can't say, for example, I'll receive him as my priest, but not as my king or my prophet. No, when you receive him as your priest, you also receive the whole Christ. You receive him as prophet, priest, and king. And so it is with these titles You do not simply receive one of these to your blessing, but all that he is is there to your blessing. And that's wonderful to think upon and wonderful to contemplate. But I think also it's appropriate and right for us, for you to think right now about your life and your situation in life and simply to ask the question, which of these titles right now, where I am in my life, which of these titles is most meaningful to me in my present need. And then turn that title into prayer. Now, I tried to do that this week, and you know what I found? I found that I need them all equally. But for you, that may not be true. There may be a great need in your life. Oh, how I need power to overcome sin. Oh, how I need wisdom. I need the divine counselor because I'm facing a situation that is just beyond me. Oh, how I need peace in my heart because that peace that should be mine as a result of the objective work of Christ is is eluding me in some way. There may be a title here that is applicable to your life right now in some special way. Christ shows himself to be for you in these titles. Remember, he is for you, not against you. And so people of God, how is he for you? Well, he's for you in wonder, as a counselor, as the mighty God, as the father of eternity, the possessor of eternity, as the prince of peace. He is for you in all of these ways and in all of these titles. So is there one that is peculiarly needful to my heart right now? So I hope that we will, we will continue to think of this as a Christmas text. It is about the birth of Christ, but I hope that also throughout the year we will return to these titles and we will say, oh, I remember the titles and I see how this is applicable to my very need. And now Because I need wisdom in this peculiar way, I'm going to get upon my knees and I'm going to turn this title. He is my divine counselor. I'm going to turn it into prayer. I need power, and so I'm going to go to the one who is the mighty God, and I'm going to turn his title into prayer. And I'm going to depend upon him to give me what I do not have on my own and never could. I also hope that counselors will make use of these titles in counsel. I've actually been surprised as I've thought upon the, the fact that I, I've never heard a counselor. Well, I've done it, but I haven't sat in front of a lot of counselors. But let me put it this way. I've never read in the literature. <laughs> I'm sure some, some, someone's done it, but I've never read in the literature um, where the titles of Christ that are found here in Isaiah 9 have been applied and counsel, and counselors have been encouraged to make use of these titles as the hope and encouragement of their people. I'm sure I'm talking to some counselors here who have done that very thing. But now, unbeliever, let me say this to you. Here is the Prince of Peace, and there is no peace, saith my God to the wicked, God says in the book of Isaiah. And he is the Prince of Peace, And the only way that you will have peace, objective peace with God by which you are accepted through the cross of Jesus Christ, His work, the only way you will have subjective peace in knowing that you are right with God, that your sins are forgiven, that you have life everlasting, is by trusting this one who is the Prince of Peace. Now, the devil gives peace as well but I can assure you it is a false peace and it is ultimately destructive. And I would like to do all that I can to shake you from that false peace. And I hope your soul is disquieted as you hear the gospel preached because you know that you do not have that peace in your heart that passes all understanding. You see your need of the Prince of Peace and maybe you're beginning to see your sin And maybe you're even beginning to say, it would take a miracle to save my soul. Indeed it would. And that's why the first title here is wonder or wonderful. Because that's what it means. The wonder working, the miracle working God is who Christ is. God becoming man, that's a miracle. Dying on a cross to satisfy the wrath of God Rising from the dead, this is just the complex of miracles that you need in order that you might be saved and have peace within your heart. And I'm going to close by quoting the 17th century minister, Miles Smith. I've never quoted Miles Smith before for some reason, but I am today. Miles Smith was a well-known minister, tremendous scholar, a Bible translator, And Miles Smith said this, and with these words I close. What place of refuge shall we fly unto? Only this, that the Son of God became the Son of Man to make us the sons of God. Vile He became to exalt us, poor to enrich us. A slave to enfranchise us, dead to quicken us, miserable to bless us, lost in the eyes of the world to save us, lastly partaker of our nature, of our infirmity, of our habitation to advance us to his kingdom and glory, that is, to be unto us according to his name. Emmanuel, God with us, God to enlighten us, God to help us, God to deliver us, God to save us. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Amen. Amen.